As a ceremonial keepsake, every new member of the Georgia General Assembly gets a commission from the Secretary of State. The big parchment scroll bearing the state seal and motto is the official document that says someone has been elected to the state's legislative body. If you were a client or visitor to the law office of Leroy Johnson, you couldn't help but see his commission, which he proudly displayed and which had nearly the same words as every other person who had been elected to the Georgia State Senate. To the Honorable Leroy R. Johnson, greeting. Whereas in conformity with the provisions of the Constitution and laws of this state, you were on the sixth day of November, 1962, elected Senator from the 38th District to the General Assembly of Georgia. Now, therefore, by virtue of the power and authority in me vested by the laws of this state, I, Ben W. Fortson, Jr., Secretary of State, do hereby commission you, the said Leroy R. Johnson, Senator. This one was a little different, however, because his election had made history. Leroy R. Johnson became the first black person to be elected to a Southern legislature since the days of Reconstruction. This episode of Hidden Legal Figures pays tribute to Senator Leroy R. Johnson, who passed away on October 24, 2019. The Ark of Justice Institute presents Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast that brings the law into plain view. I'm your host, Derek Alexander Pope, and this first-of-its-kind program rediscovers the lost stories of the lawyers and judges who shaped the civil rights movement. So, whether you're listening in your car, during your workout at the gym, or on your computer at home, you're in the right place, and this is the right time for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. Leroy R. Johnson was born July 28, 1928, in a West End neighborhood in Atlanta, Georgia. Both the city and the state were a far cry from the places where he would make history. In the 1920s, Atlanta was a confused mixture of progressive inclinations and past infatuations. The city was yearning to be the face of a new South, all the while clinging to its old customs. A young Leroy Johnson would likely have ridden on a segregated bus accompanying his mother, Elizabeth, to a downtown department store, where she no doubt would have been invited to a segregated area if she wanted to try on a pair of shoes. His parents would have had their voter registration cards filed on different color paper than white voters to indicate their race, and they would not have been permitted to serve on any municipal jury. He attended Booker T. Washington High School, which at the time was the only high school Negro students in Atlanta could attend. David T. Howard High would not open until 1948. I interviewed him at his luxurious Bughead condominium as part of an article I was planning to write for the Georgia Bar Journal to chronicle his accomplishments as both a political and legal figure. In that interview, 
He talked about how he had come to accept segregation as a way of life, at least until he entered Atlanta's Morehouse College and heard Dr. Benjamin E. Mays lash out at the custom. I was 17 years of age when I went to Morehouse. I grew up in a segregated society, and unknowingly, I had accepted segregation because I would go to the Fox Theater, go around, pay, the, pay in the front, go around, and go upstairs mm -hmm. to see the pictures, see? And I did that the Monday before going to, 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 to Morehouse. Okay. And when I got there, Dr. Mays was a speaker, and he spoke every Tuesday, mm -hmm. and had other members of a, of a black society to come in and speak to those other days. Okay. President of, of, uh, of uh, different colleges, uh, president of the uh, Alpha, Alpha Phi Alpha, and other, other great leaders. Mm -hmm. He had them to come, see. I'm sitting on the front seat, and Mays get up and start talking about segregation, mm -hmm. the evil of, segrega evil of segregation. And he said, Mohawk's men must never pay for segregation. And he said, when you go to a segregated theater, pay in the front, go around the back, you're making a mission that the people downstairs is better than you. Mm -hmm. Well, I had, that Sunday, I had gone to Fox Theater, <laughs> and I'm sitting on the front seat, and I honestly thought he was talking to me. Okay. I thought he saw me going to the Fox Theater, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that he was talking to me. And the, the effect that it had on me is that I never, ever went to a segregated theater after that okay. lecture. He said to us then that Mohawk's men must get themselves an ideal and cling to it. But he said, in order to survive in a segregated society, you must be ironclad and still dirty. Mm -hmm. That was a lesson that I learned. And I took his philosophy and that became the basis of my personal philosophy. Okay. But I really thought, <laughs> After graduating from Morehouse in 1949, Johnson went to work for Austin Thomas Walden, better known as A.T. Walden, one of Atlanta's pioneer black lawyers. At the time, Walton was head of the Atlanta Negro Voters League. We had an organization called the Atlanta Negro Voters League, mm -hmm. which was a powerful organization because it was made up of Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. And in Atlanta, the election of the mayor was not partisan. Okay. So the Democrats and Republicans, even though the mayor may be running for, the mayor may be Republican, but the, but the, but the action was not. So, uh, so, the, so black Republicans, who was really headed at that time by Mayor Jackson's grandfather, uh, Dobbs, mm -hmm. John Wesley Dobbs, mm -hmm. And uh, and Walden, see, and also was uh, Warner Cochran, Buckley okay. Street YMCA, mm -hmm. uh, Reverend Johnson, all over were Democrats, but Democrats and Republicans worked together. Okay, and the thrust was that the Voters League would get out a ticket about who to support in the in the elections. And for city, for the city council, the mayor and city council, mm -hmm. and black people, ninety-eight percent of them would follow the ticket okay. of the voters' league in their elections. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, Walden was my uh, man. man uh, he was the one that I respected and had a great deal of relationship for, 
at who I worked for okay. uh, for some time. Walden had him conduct clinics for black voters, teaching them how to use the voting machines. And uh, he wanted to create a, he wanted to get black people involved in the voting registration. Okay. And we set up uh, voting machine uh, demonstrations in different neighborhoods. Mm. We went out and taught people how to vote. Then you go in, pull a little, little ticket, and the curtain comes in, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. We showed them how to do that. Because Hartfield had said, you all want me to do something, but you don't have any, any, any voters. Mm. If you can get some voters, I'll appoint black police officers or what have you. Okay. And that was, a, that, was a, that was a thrust to get black people voting. Mm -hmm. And Wallen was in charge of most of that for the Nana Negro Voters League. Okay. And he brought me in. And that's where I got the notion and the inkling that, that the politics was one of the things that could help change the, okay. the, the system. Walden encouraged Johnston to attend law school, which he did in 1954, the same year that Brown versus Board of Education was decided. At that time, Georgia didn't allow black students to attend the University of Georgia Law School. In fact, the state had a policy where it would pay black students to get an education outside of the state. So they call it state aid. So I could not go to the University of Georgia, where I probably would have gone uh, if segregation had not uh, prevented me from doing so. So I went to North Carolina, uh, to the school in Durham, North Carolina, and pro and submitted an application to the state for state aid and the state paid a substantial amount of my uh, fees for law school in North Carolina. After Johnson graduated North Carolina Central University School of Law in 1957, the Tuskegee business community tried to lure him there to set up a law practice. But A.T. Walden convinced him to take a position as a criminal investigator in the county solicitor general's office, what we now call the district attorney, making him the first black person in the southeast to be employed in such a capacity. But fate was about to summon him to even greater heights. In 1962, Johnson became the first black person to be elected to the Georgia General Assembly in nearly 100 years. Almost immediately, he would feel the burden of being first. It was an experience that I will never forget. I went into the General Assembly in 63, and there were those who really thought that because I was present, the ceiling would fall and the seats would crumble. For the first some 40 days that I was there, not one senator spoke to me. I would walk down the corridors of the Senate, or the halls of the, in the Senate, and the senators would be going and coming in the opposite direction. I'm going in one direction, they, they'd be coming in the opposite direction. And I would say, good morning, Senator. And the reply would be, mm. And I would continue to say, good morning, Senator. As I met them, I would say, good morning, Senator. And uh, the response would be, hmm. Their bad manners would soon change, however, and Senator Johnson quickly turned the tables in his favor. The interesting thing about it is that just before the session ended, I was on a committee and been appointed to a committee as other senators had. 
And on this particular occasion, I was late going to a committee meeting. Well, just as I got to the to the door of the meeting, the bill had been discussed in, uh, in the committee, and a vote had been taken. It was a tie vote. When I opened the door and walked in, the senators who was uh, both sides of the of the uh, table jumped up, ran over to me, and grabbed me and said, Senator. I need your vote. <laughs> These were the same senators who had not spoken to me for the whole session. And I stood there, and I wondered to myself, what happened to my blackness? <laughs> All of a sudden, uh, they, they saw a, what they saw was not a black senator walking in the room, they saw a vote. Well, I had three bills in the committee. But before I decided to vote, I said, I want my bills pulled up and passed out of the committee. They pulled my three bills up, dusted them all, passed them out, and then I voted to break the time. What I really learned was that how important the vote was. In spite of the fact that I'd been there for 40 days and none of it spoke to me, only because of my skin, only because of my color, when they needed a vote, they pushed color aside and said, Senator, I need your vote. And out of all of my experience there in the General Assembly, I've learned one lesson. I've learned many lessons, but among the many was one. And that is, in politics, you get not what you deserve, but what you can negotiate. With the same stateliness, Senator Johnson would stamp out the ways of color distinction that haunted the halls of the Capitol. He would dine in the state cafeteria. He would have his pages drink from the water fountains reserved for whites until the signs came down. There was no media fanfare, just his intent and focused efforts. But I did it without fanfare. I didn't call the press and say, come in, I'm going to desegregate the Capitol Washington, see what I do. That was what I considered my burden. That's what I had to do. One of the highlights of his legendary career involved his work in returning Muhammad Ali to the boxing ring. Listen to Senator Johnson describe all the ins and outs of getting the champ back on top. What, what was your first reaction when um, Harry Pratt, I think his name was Harry Pratt, yeah. called you? What was the first thing that went through your mind? Two things, number one. I didn't know who he was. He called and told me that he had a son-in-law in New York who was involved in the boxing world. Mm -hmm. He could get a license. And he says that uh, uh, 67 City had turned him down. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't get a license anywhere. <clears throat> and he said, somebody, I called, he called somebody else in Atlanta. I don't know who he said. He said, I called somebody in Atlanta. They told me that if I wanted to get a license in Atlanta, the best thing to do is to try to reach you. Okay. And so he called me. So I didn't think much about it, and he said, if you can get him a license, call me back. If you think you can, call me back, and I'll have my son-in-law to get in touch with you. Well, I didn't think much about it, and then after I hung up, I said, I don't even know whether I can do it or not. So I called my staff in mm -hmm. and said, <clears throat> I want you to find out whether or not there's a law in Georgia dealing with the boxing, boxing commission. See? 
and they took about three days and they came back and told me, Senator, there's no law, we checked it thoroughly, and there's no law in Georgia dealing with boxing commission. Mm. The only law in Georgia says that if a boxing match take place, it has to be governed by the by the, the municipality okay. where it's to be held. Okay. That's the only thing. And I couldn't believe that. I said, you go back and check. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, you go back and check again. But he said, I'm telling you, I said, go back and check again and come back and let me know. So it took another couple of days and he came back and said, look, we checked again. There's no law in Georgia dealing with the boxing commission. The only law states that if a boxing match take place in Georgia, it is governed by the municipality where, where, mm -hmm. where, where it's to be held. Okay. And when he said that, I laid back in my, in my, uh, uh, in my chair, and in those days I was smoking cigars. And I lit a cigar, and I said, I can get him a license. Mm. So I called Harry Pitt back and I said, Harry, I can get him a license. Harry didn't believe it. Okay. He says, now you know they six or seven citizens turned him down. I says, I can get him a license in Atlanta. He said, I'm gonna have my grandpa, my uh, nephew to call you. So he called me. I told him what I've just told you. And he said, you sure you can do that? I said, listen, here's what the law says and here's what I can do. The first thing I did was to come back and um, uh, uh, make, my, make, make out a strategy, what, what should I do? I knew I had to get the city council, I knew I had to get the mayor, mm -hmm. and that's what I was concentrating on. At that time, Marvin Arrington and, and Q.B. Williamson, John uh, Jackson was there, uh, all the black, uh, about six or seven black was on the city council. Okay. And then the other folks on the city council was also my friends. All right. So I went to each one of the members of the city council and asked them, told them what the plan was and asked them if they would support me. Mm -hmm. and, and to the to the to the T, every one of them said, Senator, we're with you. Okay. We're with you. I said, okay. Then I had to go to Sam Macell. Mm -hmm. He was the mayor. Mm -hmm. So I went to Macell and I said, Sam, Mr. Mayor, uh, I got an opportunity to put um, uh, Ali in the ring, and I need your help. Now, what had happened previously is that Michelle had ran for governor. He ran against Rodney Cook. Mm -hmm. He was a Democrat. Rodney Cook was a Republican. I supported Michelle, and Michelle got about 74% of the black vote. Okay. And we've developed a friendship, and uh, Based on that friendship, when something come up in his administration, he asked me to help. They had a garbage strike, for instance, and uh, he called me in to assist him in the garbage strike, and I did. Okay. Uh, had no idea when I began to help him that I would ever have an opportunity to put Ali in the ring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, mm -hmm. But that came later. And then when I went to him and said, Sam, I need your help. I want to get uh, Ali in the ring. He said, oh, Senator, <laughs> that's a big one. Say, if we do that, the White Citizen Council, the Ku Klux Klan, those folks who hate him because he didn't go to the war, uh, say, they're going to come up and raise their ugly heads. He said, I don't know, I got to think about that. So I sit down and listen. When he got through talking about the, the doubts and all, 
I said, Sam, there's an old proposition, an old attic in politics, and that is that you dance with the one who brung you. Okay. <laughs> he shook his head and said, Senator, I can't say no to you. Okay. Okay. Say, <laughs> I'll help you. So you you got my you got my my vote. I mean you got my help. He said, but I'm not the one that you're gonna be concerned about. So you got to be concerned about the governor. Says I'll help you. Okay. Say, but your great concern is with the governor. I said, Sam, that's all I need is your mm. help. Mm -hmm. I told him I'd talk to the city council. The city council was with me. See. Okay. He said, but the governor's gonna be your problem. I said, okay. So I left his office. Realizing what the problem I had with the governor, Governor Mattis had stood in the, on the front of his restaurant, which was a Pickwick restaurant, and said that not one black would ever eat here in this restaurant. Mm -hmm. Had an axe hammer to stand that no, no blacks would ever eat here. But he became governor, and during that period of time, when I was elected, uh, he was governor. And I said, well, I got to go in there and see him and talk with him. So I made an appointment to go to the governor's office. <clears throat> Went to the governor's office and, uh, and, and uh, to talk to him. And when I walked in, before, before going to the governor's office, one week before I went to the governor's office, governor's son had got arrested in DeKalb County for hubcaps, taking hubcaps off of cars or something. Mm -hmm. And he went to jail and the court found him guilty, his son guilty. But the court said to his son, every man deserves a second chance. I'm not going to send you to jail. I'm going to give you community time mm. and let you report back to the, to the court on every Friday or whatever it was. Okay. Well, I remember that. Hmm. So when I went to the governor and talked to him, I said, Governor, I represent Ali, and I want to get him a license. I said, now, Ali is opposed to welfare because he wants to use his, his skills, the boxing skill, to make a living for himself. Now, the governor was opposed to welfare, mm -hmm. and the governor thought that all black folks was on welfare. Uh, so, so many black people was on welfare. Mm -hmm. So I tried to stir the establishment that, that Ali did not want to go on welfare. He wanted to fight. And I went and talked to him about, about the uh, possibility of getting him a license. I say, now, it is important to, for every man to have a second chance. I said, he, whatever he did, he, he wanted to fight, and that's all he knows how to do. Mm -hmm. he, but I said, he need a second chance, an opportunity to have a second chance. The same language that the, mayor, that the judge had said to his son. Mm -hmm. And when I finished talking, he said, well, listen, I believe I believe very very firmly that everybody ought to have a second chance, and I'm gonna tell you this right now. On with the fight. See, I said thank you, Governor. Left out of his office. The newspaper folks were standing out there waiting to see what was going to happen. When I walked out, Alvin Morris from WSB said, "What did the governor say?" I said, "The governor said on with the fight." So the newspaper journal and Constitution that evening headline was. The matters had approved the fight, mm -hmm. see. That night, the White Citizen Council, the Ku Klux Klan, or whoever they were, began to make a riot. Three of them, we had three people, we had three shots in our house, mm. 
at 4190 Manning Hills Lane. Somebody shot, we don't know who it was. So I called Louis Slayton, who was the district attorney, but my personal friend. Mm -hmm. And he sent some of his people out there to guard the house for the rest of the night and for the next week he's put a guard there to follow with my wife. The governor next morning came out and says, I leave will not fight in Georgia. And when I read the newspaper, I went to the governor's office and I said, Governor, I said, we had a meeting yesterday and you said, all right. He said, but something has happened since yesterday. He won't be able to fight here. I'm not going to <clears throat> give my permission for him to fight. <clears throat> I said, okay. So I left and I, that was the first time I thought that we might not be able to put Ali in the ring. Mm -hmm. But I kept saying there has to be a way out. So after Maddox told me that, I called Carl. I said, Carl, I said, Governor, we got a problem. Governor Maddox has changed his mind and says that uh, we cannot, uh, he will not allow Ali to fight. He said, oh my goodness, he says, Senator, let me do this. Let me call you back about this evening, sometime this evening. And, uh, and uh, we'll discuss it further. <clears throat> well, he didn't call me this, that evening. He called me that night about nine o'clock, mm. which is unusual. Carl Sanders called me and said, Senator, I want you to read the paper in the morning. I think you'll be satisfied. He didn't tell me why. And I said, so, okay, Governor, thank you. The next day I looked at the paper and uh, the Attorney General, Arthur Bolton, who was appointed by Sanders when he was governor, he appointed Arthur Bolton, the Attorney General of the state. And when Mattis came on, he kept Arthur, Arthur, Arthur uh, Bolton okay. as the Attorney General of the state. So Carl Sanders called me and said, you pick up the paper the next morning. And I picked up the paper and Arthur Bolton has said that the governor had no authority to stop the fight. Mm. That there's no laws in Georgia dealing with that. Okay. <laughs> and that it, 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 the municipality mm -hmm. uh, had to make this judge decision. See. So when that when I read that, I called and got a permission, called to see if I could see the governor. Okay. And I went back to see the governor, and it was exactly about three thirty that next day. And I said, Governor, where do we stand on the alley fight? Mm -hmm. I said, Attorney General said that, uh, that uh, there's no law in Georgia preventing them from fighting. I said, what's, what's your position going to be? Mm. He says, Senator, I've talked to my people and I'm not going to fight with my Attorney General. He okay. said again, on with the fight. Okay. So when he said that, I then knew that we could get Ali into the ring. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we were talking about trying to get uh, Smokey Joe, they call him, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to fight it, uh, Ali. And uh, then when I went back to him, he said, we still don't believe that you can get him in the ring. We've been down this Pembroke Pass too many times. Mm -hmm. And every time we get to that point, they stop him. Say, the only way you can convince us that he can fight in Atlanta, you put him in an exhibition fight before the main fight. And if that goes off all right, we'll let uh, our fighter fight him. Okay. So I said, okay. I came back and said, where in the world can we have an exhibition fight where we don't have any problems? Mm -hmm. 
the Ku Klux Klan, the White Citizen Council, if we had that to sit auditorium where we finally agreed to have him, it's it's right in the heart of Atlanta, and they'll come in and he have any problem at all. The fight's on. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, I'm a graduate of Mohaus. Mohaus is in the heart of the black community, mm -hmm. and if I could have it in Mohaus, it would serve as a as a a seal around. Okay. And maybe discourage anybody who wanted to come in. Mm -hmm. At least it would have that effect, see. So I called Hugh Gloucester, who was president of Mohawk College. Okay. And I knew who Hugh well. And we were friends. And I said, Hugh, I got a real problem. I explained the problem to him about we had to have a place for the exhi exhibition fight. And Hugh says, I'll call you back in about 15 minutes. He called me really back in about five minutes and said, Senator, said you can have the, uh, the exhibition at Mohouse. All right. And so we had the exhibition fight at Mohouse a month before it was at the auditorium. Okay. And the exhibition came off well. Uh, the the Mohouse gym was packed. About 85% or 90% was black. The rest was white. Mm -hmm. But we had no interference from the Ku Klux Klan or from the White Citizen Council or anything like that. Okay. It went off well. And when they when that went off well, then a month later, October the 26, 1970, we had to fight at the Senate Auditorium. Okay. Put him back in the ring. He beat Quarry, and from there he went back and won the championship. Mm -hmm. But that's the whole story. Wow. It wasn't all politics with Senator Johnson. He was an outstanding lawyer with an impressive array of clients. I represented the soul singer, the one that put this song out, Who's Making Love to Your Old Lady While You're Out Making Love. Johnny Taylor. Uh, his girlfriend was a secretary to one of my friends who was a, a doctor. Okay. And uh, his secretary asked me uh, if I would <clears throat> uh, represent her boyfriend. And a boyfriend with Johnny Taylor. Okay. And then the next case I had was uh, I represented James Brown. And uh, he sent an airplane for me to come and we drove went through to, to, uh, to, uh, to Los Angeles. But it wasn't just celebrities. Leroy Johnson was especially proud of the work he did for those whose lives hung in the balance and who needed someone to fight for them, particularly where there was an imbalance of power. Like the time when he represented a young black man accused of attacking four police officers, all the while in custody. And I can't think of the client's name. It was in uh, it was in Georgia, right before you get to the line of uh, South Carolina. It was, this was a trial that lasted about a week. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'd accused my client fighting uh, the police officer. My client was in jail. My client went to the barber shop in jail. And the barber said something to my client. My client didn't like and he he uh, he resisted. He argued back with the, with the uh, barber shop man. And the policeman came in and grabbed him and threw him down and beat him and and uh, put him back in his cell. <laughs> the police report says that when the police came in, he turned around and he attacked the police. 
he's a black man in jail mm -hmm. in the South, and he's going to jump on the two police officers. <laughs> 145 pounds, about five and a half feet tall, uh, was accused of uh, jumping on four or five police officers, which makes no sense. Mm -hmm. But that was it. That was the argument. Okay. But uh, we tried that case for about it was a, it was a week, and uh, we had an all-white jury. And if he'd been convicted, he would have another five years in jail. See? We tried that case in, in, in uh, and uh, for about a week, and to my surprise, the white jury came back and found my client not guilty. Hmm. I've tried many jury cases, but but uh, the, uh, that probably was one of the great things. After the trial was over, a group wanted to showcase the lawyer and highlight the somewhat astonishing legal accomplishment. I didn't do any, I didn't do any of that. <laughs> but his mother and his sister, he had a family of about 10 people. Uh, they came to my office afterwards. And uh, I guess that was the real satisfaction that I got. Okay. They were so happy that their son was not uh, found guilty mm -hmm. in that case. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, was, that was just another case that I thought that I, that I had to take and, and try to win mm -hmm. because of the unbalance of, of the power. We wrapped up our discussion with his reflections on the legal profession and a little commentary on social and political affairs. I think in areas where we can make a difference now is in areas where it is never thought of. You don't think about the relationship of black and white, but white controls it. White owns it. And a good example is, is the Bar Association itself. When I came along, I couldn't be a member. Okay. See, when I entered the, uh, uh, the practice of law, I think it was in 59, I couldn't be a member of the State Bar. And it's so gratifying for me to see young people like you mm -hmm. and the former president of the Bar Association, the female president, of the State Bar. Patrice Hooker? Hooker, mm -hmm. Hooker, uh, as president. Mm -hmm. When she became president, that was one of the greatest piece of progress okay. that I think that we could have made. And yet it wasn't something that hit the headlines mm -hmm. as something great and big, mm -hmm. see? Didn't hit the headlines like that. that, that. Bar headlines it did, mm -hmm. but the Constitution Journal and all, it did a great big headline. But that was a great adventure. That was a great task. Okay. See? And I think that if we, we've now have made progress in almost every area, but in areas where we haven't made progress, the Chamber of Commerce in areas where black lawyers need to get involved and, and get, get exposed. Mm -hmm to those areas. And I use the Bar Association because when she made that, that uh, when she became president, it was a tremendous uh, 
climbing that ladder for black people when that happened. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't in the area where black people were noted to be. They, they supposed to be, they've come up in the legal profession now and, uh, and they've gone into many other areas like politics and, and uh, that sort of thing. But at not, not in the association itself, not okay. in the organization itself. Mm -hmm. And when she came up, it became just to me tremendously. I'm trying to answer your question. When I see men like you get involved, It is, it, 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 it is an exception as it relates to the other part of society and mm -hmm. what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's an exception. We're coming up and we're moving fast, but I don't want, the ceiling is, is still high in terms of our being able to break it. Hmm. We still got a long way to go. Okay. See, and, and my great fear is that sometimes we look at where we are now and then we look how far we have come and then we become satisfied with where we are. Mm -hmm. But if we're satisfied with this, then the Trumps of the world will still be there mm -hmm. and you still got 35 million people who voted for Trump and that's, that bothers me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that bothers me. We, got, we still got a long way to go, mm -hmm. you know. Got to get into areas where it is not thought that we should be. And when we get there, it has to be known. The generation that comes after us has to know mm -hmm. what the generation before them has done. Mm -hmm. He credits Dr. Mays with providing him the spark to eradicate social injustice. But I guess the greatest thing was that Mays was my really, really, uh, Idol, mm -hmm. because I was 17 when I went to Morehouse. Okay. And I don't know whether I knew what I was going to do, but it was at Morehouse that I found out who Leroy Johnson was. Mm -hmm. In 1997, his old friend and political ally, Governor Carl Sanders, wrote him a letter saying, You were there, my friend and helped as much as anybody I know to create an orderly atmosphere in Georgia in the 60s. Those were perilous times. And without your help and guidance, the peaceful transition within our public schools and public institutions could never have taken place. Your career in public life is another good example of what can be accomplished when you concentrate on the positives and eliminate the negatives. The man who the New York Times Magazine once called the single most powerful black politician in Dixie says the five greatest decisions he ever made was to attend Morehouse College, marry Cleopatra, go to law school and become a lawyer, run for the Georgia State Senate, and get Muhammad Ali's boxing license. Leroy Johnson was as grand and dynamic a figure in the law as there ever was. His public life was committed to what he called changing the impression of the capabilities of excluded people. The great and lasting impact of his more than half-century devotion to that principle is a lesson in not only how to get things done, but why. Leroy Reginald Johnson, a hidden legal figure, that changed America.
In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in February 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.